When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I try to connect the stuff I've picked up along the way with your life and the stuff that's happening in the world around us, because that is that is our life. A little update, the last episode, if you listened to it, I had a liver exam coming up, one that I was extremely anxious about um, six months ago. I'm not sure the exact number. I was diagnosed with liver fibrosis, which is a scarring of the liver. Um, it's like the stage before cirrhosis. Cirrhosis is the word in English for stone. Um, so it's like the death of your liver needing a transplant. And I was really scared. Um, and during that time, I did a lot of praying and a lot of staring out the window and a lot of staring into space and asking God about what's going on and what does this mean for me right now. And uh, I learned a lot through that time about even if we know our lives are shorter than we thought they would be, that they can still be life. Life will keep going. And it'll also go on without us. And that was a comfort too, knowing that you'll be out there uh, doing good stuff in my stead. And I learned a lot through that. What for me was facing a very much, a much shorter life. My grandfather lived to be 53 and I just turned 46. I was about to turn 46. So um, I'm glad that I got to see that behind-the-curtain experience a little bit over the spring and summer. And then I took the test on November 10th last week, um, a fiber scan, it's called. It's like a, it sort of thumps your liver to see if it's hard or soft and what's going on in there, like an ultrasound in some ways for your liver. And it came back that my liver is good. Um, now, I still have to wait for the doctor to meet with me, for some reason, you get these results like the next morning and you, I like Google, I'm Googling these weird numbers on this chart and I, I just, in panic, I write back through the app, you know, the medical app, like I'm um, having a panic attack because every time I Google the, this information, I come up with stuff like you're about to die, you know, <laughs> like I don't know what these numbers mean, you know, like maybe it's not good to send people their test results at six in the morning without a doctor, you know, telling you what's going on with them, at least for people like me who have anxiety issues. And, um, and so, uh, and so they wrote back, yeah, your liver is a hundred percent functioning. It's okay. And I was shocked. I was like overjoyed and still am like really thankful that, you know, I went on a zero alcohol diet. I, I like beer, you know, like that a lot. Um, zero alcohol and ate a lot of oatmeal and vegetables. I ate so much oatmeal and vegetables in the first couple weeks of just like staring into the abyss of unbeing, of thinking about my death and scared that something I could eat, whether it's a a dye in a soda or a 
you know, whatever it was, a toxin, a chemical, some sort of thing that could hurt my liver. Uh, I was supposed to stay away from all fat, both good and bad fats, especially the bad fats, but even the good ones, like maybe a tablespoon of olive oil a day, spoonful of peanut butter a day. And I wasn't even doing that because I was just terrified of hurting my liver more. And and during that time, I, I was running more because they said exercise is good, you know, keep exercising. So I kept doing that and I was on the track one morning and I like had this weird pain in my calf and after not being able to walk or run for days and days I talked to a physical therapist and they said you know after I told them about my diet and this radical switch and and they were like oh yeah you probably have malnutrition you know you're not your body's not getting the stuff it needs and stuff starts to break like your muscles when you run fast and so I you know I had a malnutrition in- injury from that so I don't recommend this kind of diets, even though I lost a lot of weight, which is sort of the all-American quest that we're all on as Americans. Like, how do we lose this weight? Um, I did lose a lot of weight. And everybody said how good I looked. And I looked at him and I would tell him, you know, like, yeah, I, I have a liver disease that, that could kill me, you know, maybe not tomorrow, but in a couple of years. And I'm really scared. That's why I, that's why I'm, I lost weight, you know. And they would kind of look at me like, oh, I guess maybe that's not the secret. Um, so I don't, I don't market the secret. Follow me in the comments, link in bio for winning diet on how to, on how to lose a lot of weight. Um, get diagnosed with a, a near fatal liver disease. So uh, that's been what's, what's going on. I wanted to update you and hope, thank you for your prayers. A lot of people prayed for me that, you know, I knew of, and it's probably a lot that I didn't. And there were, there were some people I reached out to, please pray. I need help really struggling. So thank you for doing that. If you did that. And if you didn't, that's okay too. You, you would have, if you had known, uh, you know, it's hard to know what you tell people. Um, what do you, what do you say when you have something? And I don't really have a good, good advice for that because sometimes you get like too much advice. Um, and sometimes you, you know, people treat you differently. So information about us is our information, especially when it's about our health. So I don't really know how to handle that. And I try to do that the best I could. But I still have obviously a liver that's really sensitive to alcohol, one, and uh, to probably a lot of other things too. There's definitely some family history there with my grandfather and probably others if I did enough research. So it's something to think about um, going forward for me. But thanks for listening to that. We want to get to Jesus because that's uh, hopefully why you came to listen to this today. The text that we encounter in today's gospel reading in Mark 13 is provocative. It is the statement that Jesus says, look, not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down in regard to the temple. It is these statements about the temple that are brought up at his trial in just a few chapters uh, in Mark's gospel and the other gospels. 
the they bring false witnesses to his trial that say he's a terrorist. He is trying to destroy our beloved temple. Uh, and this is this is the words that are brought to convict him of blasphemy. Blasphemy against the temple was a crime. And even uh, the terroristic kind of threat that he is trying to destroy the tenets of our faith, uh, of their shared faith. Jesus is Jewish in the full sense of that word in that time. He is a Galilean, but you know, he was born in Bethlehem. He's of the house of Judah, which is the origin of the term Jewish or Jew. And so this is an inter-Jewish question and controversy that then becomes a Roman controversy. They take Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor, with these charges. Um, they, the charges really don't stick. In the trial with the high priest, they are false witnesses that are brought. They, they're, it's hard, kind of hard to pin this one on Jesus that he's trying to make the temple go away. But that is the charge, and it comes from this text in Mark 13. The disciples are in awe of the huge stones. Some of the base stones of the temple are still there today. We call it the Western Wall or sometimes the Wailing Wall. Um, very large stones. Uh, before the invention of mortar, you know, the brick and mortar, uh, the only way to build a solid building or wall was to have the largest stones you could possibly find because they weren't going anywhere. You place a stone upon a stone upon a stone that's huge. Um, they're not moving, and they're more solid than any brick-and-mortar building. It's literally a wall of stone. And that is the way the temple is construct- constructed. We know from the descriptions of Solomon building the temple, which this is not Solomon's temple that Jesus is talking to. This is Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah's temple, if you will, not sure how, how to classify that. This is the second temple uh, built after the return from exile, built and then elaborated upon by none other than Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the son of a, a noble king, Nabataean king, who this young son of this king rises to fame as in his 20s when he saves Mark Antony's ass. I don't know if you remember Mark Antony. He's a Roman, you know, bigwig who ends up with Cleopatra and opposing Julius Caesar. He's in the play, Julius Caesar. Friends, Romans, and countrymen, lend me your ears. I come not to bury Caesar, but to praise him. That Mark Antony is the one that Herod becomes buddies with. And this young war leader... Uh, does some great work to get rid of the bandits that are preying upon caravans and trade and in the land of Israel. And eventually he becomes the client king of Rome. He's not really fully Jewish. He marries into the the high priestly and kingly family of the Hasmoneans. His wife, Mariamne, is uh, part of this family. So he marries into the Jewish royal family. Um, and his his claim to the throne is is somewhat tenuous. Um, it's not as strong as others, and it's actually quite weak. Um, he does present himself as the king of the Jews, as a Jewish king, and Rome treats him as such. But a lot of Jewish people 
at the time of Jesus are a little skeptical. We meet Herod the Great when the wise men come to visit him. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? And this aged king, Herod the Great by this time is, I think, in his 70s, which is quite old at that time. He is dyeing his hair uh, black from gray to look younger, Josephus tells us. And he is obsessed with his own power. He doesn't know what to do with his his kingdom. He's already killed his son. He's killed his wife because he thought they were disloyal to him. And he is a tyrannical despot at this point when we meet him in the Gospels in Matthew. Um, he dies, and then his kids take over, a few that are left. Uh, and that, that's the Herods we meet in the Gospels, for, for the most part, the ones that killed John the Baptist and others. But uh, he's the one that built this temple that Jesus is talking about, this beautiful temple with Solomon's porch, um, an ode or a sort of a legacy name for the original temple built by Solomon that was, of course, destroyed by the the Babylonians in 586 BC. So this restoration of the temple holds all their hopes and dreams. And when Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon another, all will be thrown down. Uh, this becomes uh, a buzzword or a repeated phrase that circulates back to the Jewish leaders who eventually bring it up at his trial. What does it to mean, though, for us today? Why is this significant to us? Uh, pretty early commentators on the Gospel of Mark uh, read the Gospel of Mark in light of the Jewish War. The Jewish War, a book by Josephus, writing many years after the events, describes what happens in 63, 64, 65, 66 AD, and eventually in 70 AD, which is the destruction of the temple by Titus Andronicus. Titus Andronicus is the son of Vespasian, the emperor. Uh, Vespasian originally invades Judea and Galilee, and then he goes back to Rome to become emperor and sends his son, and his son uh, fights with the Jewish rebels who are rebelling against Rome. And most Jewish people at the time, including Josephus, hate the rebels as much as they hate the Romans. In fact, they start to take the side of the Romans. Many Jewish people do. And yet the rebels have a stranglehold in the city of Jerusalem. They are besieged. They go further and further into the city as the Romans break the, breach the walls and eventually make their last stand in the temple. And even though Titus tries hard to not destroy the temple, to not get rid of the temple, not to burn the temple, the temple gets burned. And it's hard to know who's to blame, the Romans or the Jewish rebels, but they become the villains, these Jewish rebels. And the Romans then enslave so many people, which is typical of Rome, that the, the price of slaves drop all over the Roman Empire. There's such a glut on the market of Jewish slaves. Finally, the Jewish war ends at Masada. Um, that Herodian, Herod, built this fortress on this really high plateau, Mesa, I'm not sure what you call it, big rock that sticks out of the desert in the eastern part of Israel, really in, uh, almost in Jordan, by the Dead Sea. And they make their last stand there, which is a suicide pact. They kill each other. And there's a few people that hide and escape and tell the Romans what happened. But instead of being enslaved, they, um, they decide to kill themselves in a last stand at Masada. 
Jew- or Israeli army officers are commissioned at Masada even to this day, and their vow there is Masada will never fall again. But this is the context of reading Mark's gospel is in light of this destruction of the temple that happens in the Jewish war. Uh, and this is hard, you know, to say, like, I think it's it, the cynical take is to say that, well, Jesus couldn't have known about, you know, Jesus, like this, this is Mark writing this prophecy into Jesus' mouth. Jesus never said this, but we're going to pretend that he said this, so that he sort of becomes a prophet. And that's a really cynical way to read the Bible. I think that with all prophets, most people ignore most of what they say until something actually happens. And they say, oh, let's go back and look at that. And maybe we'll highlight that and make that a more important part of their their teaching and their sayings. And that certainly is what's happening in Mark here. The temple's been destroyed and they're looking back to what Jesus said about it. Not one stone will be left upon another. The story goes, told by Josephus, that because the gold, there's such a high burn temperature in the temple as it's burning, uh, that a lot of the gold gets melted and runs into the cracks of the rocks. And so the Romans excavate looking for the gold. They pull stone upon, off of each other to find the gold that's dripped into the cracks. Eventually that stone gets reused, re- reused for other buildings as was done in the ancient world and is still done today in some places. And so not one stone is left upon another. There are descriptions of the London fire that I've read that the lead, they used a lot of lead in roofing, uh, which is a soft metal similar to gold. I'm not sure if the melting point of lead is close to gold, but it's close. Um, Just rivers of lead pouring through the streets of London during the great fire from the roofs, mainly from St. Paul's Cathedral, the old one that burned. Um, And a similar situation would have happened. There was so much gold packed in the temple by the rebels. They they had stolen so much from the Jewish people that lived in Jerusalem um, that they had it all stashed in the temple. So when it burns, that gold starts to melt. Um, so you imagine that just the hellish moment of that war. And Mark is writing about that war as much as he's writing about Jesus, the kind of destruction that happens. And so for Christians today to look at these events, we must read them through the lament of the Jewish people as they mourn their temple. And even today, um, Jews today often, uh, and I can't speak for all Jews, I don't speak for any Jews, I'm not a Jewish person, I'm not a follower of the Jewish faith. Um, The Jewish faith and Christianity diverged around the time of the writing of this gospel. Um, We went our separate ways although we've had many interactions since, many of them not so great, and some of them downright horrific, things like the Holocaust and other awful moments where Christians have out and out tried to exterminate the Jewish people in genocide and other ways. And this keeps cropping up. Uh, The Q movement today is the latest iteration of this kind of anti-Semitic. Whenever you hear someone talking about globalists and a secret group of people that sort of control the world. That's the kind of stuff that gets Jewish people killed and persecuted. And that history of Jewish people and Christian people disagreeing on these core tenets of faith and belief uh, must be present when we read these texts that 
they're going to, they're Jewish people are going to read this and see that Jesus is, and Christians are trying to do away with the temple and sort of justify that and maybe even celebrate it. Um, and that is not what is happening. Jesus, in this final moments of his earthly life, is lamenting the fact that nobody can see what's happening, that the, that the powder keg of Jerusalem that he is living in is about to explode. And it, it will not be his death and resurrection that will explode it. It is other factors that have already been put in place. And he is prophesying in the sense that he is seeing into the future, seeing what will be, what will happen, um, and lamenting that. This is a sad moment in the life of Jesus. And he says that, be careful that no one leads you astray. Being led astray in a time of great uncertainty is how it works. Whenever there is instability in our country, there are people that rise up and tell you that they can save you, that they will make it better. Uh, and this is certainly true, not just in the Trump era, but it, it was happening long before that. And it will happen again. And Jesus says that many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they'll lead many astray. Being led astray is to be led off the path to be led off the path of faithfulness, the path of love, the path of caring about your fellow community. What happens in a crisis is that somebody tells you, I can save you and you alone. If you follow me, you're going to be good and screw everybody else. And the truth is that the community that Jesus founds says the only way we're going to be saved is if we're saved together. That's the only way that's going to matter. So when you hear of these rumors of wars and wars, don't be alarmed. It's going to take place. The end has not happened yet. The end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes and famines. This is the beginning of the birth pangs. And so this apocalyptic event that Jesus is predicting, which is his return to rule the earth with justice and love, and with all the ways that humans have failed to do that over the millennia, Jesus, as the ultimate human, both God and human, is coming to do that. And this is the moment he's been waiting for. It is not happening um, fully yet. All prophecy or apocalyptic literature is interpreted through the already not yet lens, in my mind. Um, that Jesus does inaugurate a kingdom, a kingdom of love, a kingdom of self-sacrifice, a kingdom of freedom and peace. He does that in his earthly reign, ministry. And he inaugurates that in the Sermon on the Mount. He tells you what it's going to look like. And then he rules it from his cross and from his empty tomb and from his ascension into heaven. This is where the kingdom starts. And yet it is not fully realized yet. It is already not yet. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we are still waiting for that full moment where it's all going to happen at once. But little bits of it are happening now. And so when you feel that chaos coming, the earthquakes, the rumors of wars, the instability that drives some people to exploit it and say, I can save you, follow me screw everybody else. That's the moment where you've got to hang on and say, no, 
This is the beginning of birth pangs. The pain and uncertainty that we see and feel is actually a good process, not a bad one. Uh, Having been a male who has witnessed live birth more than once, I can tell you that a birth pang, labor pains, whatever you call them, Braxton Hicks, all the way up to the full moments and final moments of giving birth, do not feel like good things from my observations from a distance on the other side of the room, cowering in fear. And those of you who have experienced that personally in your own bodies know that although it is a good thing to give birth to a child in this world, the process is really painful. And that's true with every process in our life, every single one of them, even the one that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, my relationship with alcohol, my relationship with food, my relationship with my health and how long I think I will live. All of those things that were renegotiated for me in these last months were really, really painful. And I felt like it was the end, but they were the birth pangs giving birth to something new. And I know that's true. The thing is, you can't really tell somebody that this is all for your own good and this is great and I hope you're going to be great and uh, I'm glad this is happening to you. We don't do that, especially as Christians. We say, like, that's up to God. What God is doing in a person's life is up to God. But we'll be here with you. I get to be a spiritual midwife as a priest. And I love that part of it to watch and be with people as they go through the kind of birth pang transitions to a fuller life, to a life that is free from anxiety and worry, or at least more free from anxiety and worry, a life where people are giving everything to God and saying, God, everything is yours that I am and have. And I want to live in that light. And I get to witness that and see that up close. It is really the most amazing thing. And that's not something just priests can do. It's something that that every Christian gets to do if we listen, if we hear what God is doing in other people's lives. Amen. Today's collect is one of my favorites, our prayer for today. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. It's an amazing prayer. When you pick up the Bible to read, Mark, learn, and inwardly digest.